Welcome to the Open Bible Podcast, a resource of Church of the Open Bible in Swift Current, Saskatchewan. In today's episode, Pastor Jay and Pastor Joe continue the doctrine of salvation by discussing the results of salvation, such as justification and adoption, as well as the determining cause of salvation, which is mainly the doctrine of election. Hello, church and guests. This is Pastor Jay Hines and Pastor Joe Sorgen welcoming you to another episode of the Open Bible Podcast. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. On today's episode, we will be looking together at chapters 52 and 54 of Charles Ryrie's book, Basic Theology, which continues his section on soteriology or the, the biblical doctrine of salvation by considering some of the results of salvation, like justification and adoption and others, as well as determining the determining cause of salvation, namely election. So we're going to start, first of all, with the results of salvation that Ryrie gives. And he mentions right at the beginning that really there's, I mean, hundreds of results, uh, but he focuses on some of the, the key ones, and that's what we're going to focus on as well. So why don't you start, Joe, with telling us a bit about the biblical doctrine of justification and why it matters. Yeah, so uh, justification, you may have heard this is kind of a classic one that maybe uh, you learned growing up that Justification is uh, being made just as if I never sinned, which is a little bit of uh, oversimplification for sure. Um, but I think it still is a little bit helpful in grasping a little bit uh, as to what justification is all about. But uh, maybe a better definition would be justification is to be declared righteous. It's like an announcement that you are are righteous. It doesn't actually make you righteous, but it's the announcement, the proclamation uh, that that you are already, you have been made uh, righteous. So again, it's to declare uh, righteous. And of course, the whole idea with justification as well is that uh, the, the implication, I suppose, is that you were once wicked uh, and, and you have this need to be declared righteous. Um, it's something that had to happen. And we see this, this doctrine several places, of course, throughout the scriptures. Uh, one place being in Romans chapter 3. So I'll just read Romans 3, 21 through 26 here. So it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, there's that word, by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there again, we see that word justified a couple times again, showing that we have been declared righteous for the one who has put their faith in Jesus. Yeah, and that term justification is a legal term. And like you said, it's it's not saying that we necessarily are righteous in and of ourselves and our experience, because we're not, mm -hmm. of course. And Romans uh, 1, 2, 3, up to the point uh, where you read, all make that very yes. clear, right? So it's not our righteousness. It's not that Jesus or that God makes us righteousness in and of ourselves, but rather, like you said, he announces, he declares we're righteous in Christ because of what Christ accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection, that he, uh, in other word, imputes his righteousness to us. It's like our account uh, was, was uh, 
under under the the ledger you could say it was just filled with all of our unrighteous deeds and then here's jesus and his account is just full of righteousness mm -hmm. well on the cross he exchanges those right he takes our unrighteousness upon himself bears the penalty for it and then when we come to him in faith he gives us that righteousness he credits it to our account so that now god when he sees us he doesn't see us as sinners but as saints right he, he says you are now righteous in christ that's how i see you uh, luther famously said why we're on the one hand we are sinners but we are also saints and that's how jesus that's how god now sees us and declares us and i think it's really helpful you know to recognize that that's how god sees us now mm -hmm. uh and i think this is really where it where the rubber meets the road we could say yeah the why does it matter you know like despite when we do uh unrighteous deeds which we will continue to do um, because we are sinners, as, as Luther stated. Mm -hmm. uh, yet God sees us as a saint, as righteous, because his righteousness is imputed to us. And that should just give us, I think, a, a greater assurance, for sure, and, and a lot more confidence in our walk with the Lord to know, well, we do make mistakes. We have been declared righteous. We have been justified. And, uh, and we can, you know, we can take that to the bank, that we can mm -hmm. hold on to that promise, that truth, because it has been declared, we are made righteous. The righteous judge has declared us righteous in Christ once and for all. And uh, yeah, that is foundational to our, our faith. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to the next result, which is the how the sin nature has been judged in salvation. Uh, back in the book of Romans, again, Romans 6 starts off by talking about how we, through our baptism, and, and they're referring to, I believe, our spiritual baptism, our our immersion into Christ through faith, we have been united with him so that uh, just as he died and rose, we have spiritually died and risen and one day will physically die and rise as well. And then he goes on to say that one of the effects of that is this in verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So essentially what he's saying is because we've spiritually died and risen to new life in Christ, the old life, the old sin nature has now been judged. Its power has been broken so that we can now live new lives of righteousness. Essentially, because of this, we now can say no to the sin nature, right? Uh, prior to our dying and rising spiritually with Christ, we were not able to say no. Our flesh dominated us. But now that that power has been broken, we can say no. We can say, that's not me anymore. I don't have to do what you say. I can now follow Christ. And this is what Paul goes on uh, to say in verse uh, Romans 6, verse 11 and on. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what we need to see ourselves. So when temptation comes, it's like, hey, I don't have to do that anymore. That's not who I am. Then he goes on, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. We used to have no choice. You know, we weren't necessarily um, cognizant of it, but we were enslaved to our passions, but we don't have to anymore. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you. That is such an important, important truth. Um, I've, I've heard it put this way, just an, an image. 
uh, someone, let's say, was, was was in the military, you know, and they were in the military, signed up for however many years, three years or whatever. And uh, while you were in the military, you had a drill sergeant and, and you were under his domain, his authority. And when he said jump, you said how high. When he said, get on the floor and give me 100 pushups, you got on the floor and gave 100 pushups. You had to. That's who you are. You were a soldier. You were under his domain. But then let's say three years later, uh, you finish your term and you're out of the military. And uh, one day you're walking down the street, um, you know, just an ordinary citizen, and you see your drill sergeant in the distance. And he comes up to you and says, soldier, get on the ground and give me a hundred. And, and your instinct might be, yes, sir. And then you think, wait a minute, that's not who I am anymore. I'm not a soldier. I'm not in the army. Your power over me has been broken. I don't have to do what you say. And you can walk away and do uh, what you now will to do. And really, that's essentially what happened in, happens to us in salvation. The power and dominion of the flesh is gone. We don't have to do what it says. The power has been broken. Now, instead of being slaves to sin, we can be slaves to righteousness in Christ. And that makes all the difference in the world. That's really key to our sanctification, our growth and holiness. Well, uh, Ryrie goes on and, and talks about another result of salvation, which is the believer's family fellowship. What exactly is that about? Yeah, so, uh, you know, fellowship is a word that we use a, a lot, of course. And uh, in this sense, we're talking about the the relationship we have with one another as believers. Uh, do we have that family dynamic as believers? Do we have that family fellowship? And really, the book of, of 1 John really focuses in on fellowship. Our fellowship as believers with God, but also our fellowship as believers with one another. So the whole idea of fellowship is something that obviously we we talk about quite a bit as a church. We want to have fellowship with one another. We want to have a good relationship within the church, within the body of believers. And this whole idea of fellowship is something that's really drawn out in the book of 1 John. It's really the, the main idea, our fellowship with God as believers, but also our fellowship with one another. And so in 1 John chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 10, we really begin to see some of this fellowship on display, what this should look like. So uh, it says, this is a message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, well, we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there again, we see these two aspects of fellowship, our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another are very connected. Uh, first of all, we see we need to have right fellowship with, uh, with God. Uh, and when we have that, then we can also have right fellowship with one another as well. Uh, we see that in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So uh, we, we really see that um, uh, fellowship is a very important idea. And we need to have fellowship, first of all, with God, having right relationship with him. Um, and, uh, and there's many ways to do that. Of course, it highlights here confessing our sins would be a, a very important part of that. Um, but once we have this, this right fellowship with God, we also have right fellowship with one another. And these two are so interconnected. It goes on later on in 1 John to say as well, uh, if you don't love your brother, 
you're not living like you love the Lord either. So, so these two ideas are very, very interconnected. And that's really why it matters, I think, as well. Um, because, you know, if we say we love God, but we hate our brother, we're not living as a Christian should. And if we, if we, if we love our brother, but we hate God, again, then we're not really loving our brother as well as we can either. And so uh, it, it really comes down to living out our faith and having right fellowship, of course, with God, but also with one another. And I think it's a very practical thing too, because, you know, when we, when we live amongst one another as believers, it's easy to butt heads. And uh, something that I think is really helpful to remember is like, I'm going to spend eternity with this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's important for us to have good fellowship because we will be spending eternity together forever. Uh, that's what eternity is. And so, uh, yeah, that, that idea of having right fellowship here on earth, even prior to that fellowship that we'll have with one another in heaven, I think is very important. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go to another result of salvation, which is how uh, our salvation brings an end to the law in the life of the believer. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 16 to 17 says this. I think this is a great summary that gets us thinking through this. It says, from his fullness, that's Jesus, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So essentially, John is pointing to the fact that something new was happening in Jesus that was different, that superseded the law of Moses. And it had to do with a difference between the, the principle of living for living for God, uh, not so much a focus on law, but on grace. Uh, later on in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul also talks this way. And uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, He's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What's he talking about? Well, it goes on, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. So that's the uh, clearly the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, that's the new covenant, have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. He's pointing to the fact that the old covenant and the law brought about condemnation. It couldn't save anyone and also it couldn't sanctify anyone. It couldn't uh, be the, the, the power in order to make us live for God rightly and obey him. Verse 10, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it, right? The new covenant surpassing the old covenant. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So essentially what he's saying there is the old covenant law of Moses has been superseded now by the new covenant law of Christ. Now the law of Moses was mostly legal in character. And that's why John emphasizes that in, in John 1, 17. And it was essentially, hey, producing change, producing obedience to God through rules and threats. Now, that wasn't all of it. There was still grace in the old covenant, but the emphasis was on rules and threats. Whereas the new covenant, the church now, we are under the law of Christ, which is mostly gracious in character. Uh, there's, of course, still commandments, but the emphasis is rather on producing change and obedience through the Holy Spirit and the spiritual resources he gives us. And that change happens for us in in salvation. 
Uh, I read later chapter six of Romans that's talking about the Christian life. And in verse 14, it said, for sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace, right? There's been this change now where the principle for um, living a life for God is no longer law, but grace. And really Galatians talks about this throughout, particularly in chapters three, through six. And Paul there uses a whole lot of different images and metaphors. He talks about the, the old covenant law being like a guardian. So like a child, when they're young, they have a guardian who has certain uh, rules and restrictions for them to help them through that part of their life when they're young and, and immature. But then later on, as they're older, they don't need that anymore. And they're given uh, uh, less law or even a different law that has less rules, less threats, because now you're mature. Now you're able to do the right thing because you've been trained into that. Well, Paul says, essentially, that's like the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant law, which again, was primarily had to do with rules and threats and the new covenant law that primarily has to do with the Holy Spirit and the resources he gives. And that's why in chapter five, Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back to the old covenant law. Don't go back to rules and threats as the main motive for obedience. But rather, he goes on to say in verse 16, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then verse 80 says, but if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law, right? The, the law principle is no longer what you need to overcome the flesh. It's the spirit relying on him. And uh, the law as we have it then is, is much more simple. It's the law of Christ, which later we're told uh, is in chapter six, verse two is this bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ, which is similar to what he said earlier in chapter five, uh, 13 about serving one another in love. So there's this change that has happened uh, in between the old covenant, and new covenant, and in salvation, we now become partakers of all those new covenant blessings. The Holy Spirit's now in us. And that makes all the difference in the world because all of us know what it's like to try to change by sort of pulling up our bootstraps. Okay, I got to try harder. I need to focus more on the rules. I need to remind myself every day of the 10 commandments. Um, you know, and I need to remember that if I don't do this, God's going to punish me. God's going to discipline me. All these bad things are going to happen. Just like the old covenant law said, well, of course, we do need to know that the commands and teachings of Christ, but that's not primarily uh, what's going to uh, get us to the point we want to be as we're changing and conforming to Christ. It's rather through the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul means. And the authors mean when they talk about the end of the law. And that's a that's a result. That's a blessing that we have. And it means that unlike old covenant believers, man, we have these spiritual resources that they didn't have. And we can actually see real significant change in our lives. Well, uh, one more result of salvation that Ryrie talks about, and it's the biblical doctrine of adoption. What's that about? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, most of us are familiar with the, the idea of adoption in the world today, and we know that it, it places someone into a new family, and all the privileges of that family become theirs. Uh, I have a few cousins who are adopted, and I didn't know growing up that they were adopted, and I wouldn't have guessed that they were adopted because they were family. They were just just like any of my other cousins, any privilege that came from being part of uh, the, the Newfeld family, it was my mom's side of the family, uh, it, it was theirs. 
the privileges were theirs. And the same is true when we talk about adoption biblically. Because when we talk about adoption biblically, we're talking about God placing a believer in his family. And all the privileges of being in God's family are that believers now as well. And so we see this idea, this concept in Romans chapter 8 uh, being one of the places. So I'm going to begin at verse 12. Romans 8 verse 12 says this. So then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So again, that idea that we are grafted into to God's family as adopted sons, and uh, and that's that's amazing. It's it's really such a great thing. And this matters because, you know, we've, we've talked before about being slaves to righteousness because we are called to be that, but we're not just slaves. And that's very key to remember. And, and that's what this is talking about here as well. We have been adopted as sons. We're co-heirs with Christ. Like that is that is just amazing. And one other thing I'll mention too about about the concept of adoption. It's very, very tied with what we're going to talk about next here as well. Uh, with with election because of course when it when we talk about adoption usually you say you know i want him to be in my family and bring them and you know they they join the family and the same idea happens with with adoption as well clearly the bible talks about election and it's those who are elect that god chooses to bring into his family as adopted sons and and, and daughters so these two are very very connected yeah and that takes us to this final uh, doctrine, Ryrie gives a whole chapter to it, the doctrine of election. And we just need to say up front, this is a very difficult doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have spent countless hours studying this. Read, I have like probably about a dozen or more books on my bookshelf that just deal with this issue. It is hard. And, and therefore, we need to be very gracious with each other and recognize it's not a doctrine that is as clear as sometimes people make it out to be, what exactly it means. And, and sadly, because of that, the discussions and debates have often generated much more heat than light. Um, but it is nevertheless something we do need to address because it's clearly a biblical doctrine. Uh, election simply means this, that God, it's God's choosing those who are saved. Now, there are times where election is, is clearly not talking about salvation, but service. But most of the time it's talking about salvation. And that's usually where the issue is. It's God choosing those uh, who will be saved. And we find this all over the scriptures. One example, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits. Now, another word that's tied to election is predestination, which basically means to predetermine someone's destiny, you could say, or better for the Greek term is to mark off beforehand. But again, it's this idea of God choosing those who are saved. The Bible clearly teaches that we need to deal with it. We can't just say, I don't believe in election. Well, the Bible does. So we need to determine then what exactly it means. And the issue is always this. What is the relationship between God choosing us and us choosing God? Because as much, yes, the Bible talks about God choosing us, but just as much or more so, it talks about us needing to choose him or needing to believe in him, needing to put our faith in him. And so what's the relationship between those? That's really where the debate lies. And really quickly, uh, I'm just going to talk about the three main views as Ryrie does uh, as well. 
And the first is usually called the, the foresight view or foreknowledge view. And it has to do with uh, Jesus, or sorry, um, just finding the, the passage here where I'll, I'll just read his, um, here we go. He says, this view holds that God elects on the basis of foreseen faith. Okay, so it's this idea, sometimes it's put this way that like God, of course, God doesn't do this, he's eternal, but we might think about it in our limited perspective, looks through the corridors of time and sees who's going to believe in him in eternity past, and then he chooses them. Now, I think that's a bit of a straw man. I don't think anyone really believes that, that that's the way. It's rather based on uh, two passages. First of all, First uh, Peter uh, 1, 1 to 2, where it talks about the elect exiles um, who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Uh, Romans 8, 28, 29 also has this idea of foreknowledge. and But the key here is this according to the foreknowledge of God. So uh, essentially what it means is that those who would hold to this view would say, well, well what Peter's saying here is that those whom God elects, um, he foreknew, he knew beforehand that they were going to uh, believe in him and, and choose him. And so therefore his, his choice of them, it's not based on that foreknowledge. It's not like, well, God, well, I guess I have to choose them because they chose me, but rather it's according to that. It's, it's God taking the initiative still to choose certain people's salvation, but it's according to his knowledge that they will also receive him. Um, I often find marriage, I'm going to use this as, as metaphors throughout. You can think about it like this. It'd be like someone um, actively choosing a bride, a husband, or a man choosing a bride, yet knowing that they will also choose him. It's according to that foreknowledge. It's not based on that. It's not like, well, this, I, oh, great. I know this person will choose to marry me. So I guess I have to now. Uh, that's not what according to foreknowledge means. Rather, it's this idea that those, their choosing is linked with, with God's choosing. Okay. So that's, that's one view. Uh, the other view is called usually corporate election. And this is the idea that uh, primarily the election is the election of Christ himself and his body. And so it's basically that God chose to save whoever will be in Christ and in his, his body, in his, his church, right? That's who I choose. I choose Christ and the church. Whoever then chooses to be part of that, to have faith in Christ and be united to Christ and there be included in his body, that uh, they are the elect. And this is usually based on Ephesians 1, uh, verse 4, where it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So they would say, this is saying, well, who did God choose to be saved? Us in him. Okay, well, who is us in him? Who are those who are united to Christ? Well, later in verse 13, it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So those who are in Christ, in his church, are those who believe, right? So um, God says, I choose those who will be in Christ based on their believing in him, who will be part of his church. A uh, marriage metaphor might be this. It'd be like a husband, or sorry, a man uh, saying, uh, I choose my bride. I choose the person who I will eventually marry to marry them, right? Uh, and so the person who chooses uh, to, to be my bride, I'm going to also choose them. That's sort of what he's he's saying there. And then there's a third view. 
And this is usually called the unconditional uh, election, which is basically this. It's the eternal act of God. This is Ryrie's definition, or the one he quotes, whereby uh, he, in his sovereign good pleasure, on an account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of men to be the recipients of special grace and of eternal salvation. So basically, it's the idea that God chooses those to be saved, um, not based on anything in themselves, including any foreknowledge that they would uh, choose him and believe in Christ, or any sense that, well, those who will be in Christ. It's just completely God choosing those who will uh, who uh, choosing those whom he decides I I want them to be my people, um, and this then is tied to a whole lot of other doctrines, but we could put it this way: um, we would they would say we would never choose God in any way. God must first choose us and change our will so that we then will absolutely choose Him, right? Um, that's that's essentially what's going on in this one. So that's unconditional election. There is no condition. There is no relationship between whether or not someone is going to choose uh, God, believe in Christ. It's purely God choosing us because according to this view, we never would choose God in any way unless he chooses us first and uh, allows us and, and changes us so that we can choose him. So there's slightly different variations of this. And so I could use some different analogies. This might very few, I think, would take this approach, although I've heard this language, that essentially it would be like this. It would be like a man saying, I choose that woman to be my bride, and there's no way she would ever choose me, so I'm going to, you know, drag her kicking and screaming <laughs> to the altar, right? Um, that's a little bit of a straw man, but I have heard some of that language before. But probably a better analogy that gets closer to what people, how people view this um, is more it'd be more like um, a man saying, I choose this woman and then I give her a love potion so that she start now she chooses me, right, as well, but yet by her own will. Um, or some would be a bit softer, would say something like, I choose this woman to be my bride and I'm gonna, I have the ability to woo her in a way that she cannot resist and she will then inevitably choose me. So that's the, the relationship here between God choosing us and us choosing God. We would never choose God unless he first chooses us. And then by choosing us through, you know, and there's different terms here, uh, but through effectual calling and irresistible grace, he then uh, makes it possible for us and, and actually inevitable that we would choose him. That's the connection there. And that's based also on Ephesians 1, where it talks, where we see that his choice of us is in the passive tense, which seems to imply that there was no reason. And also when he talks about an eternity past choosing us, it seems to be this connection again, there's nothing we would have done. Uh, but also in Romans 8, we see this, where there's this chain of events. Uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So that happens after. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's this connection here. It seems like from way back in eternity past him predestining us, then him effectually calling us, uh, then us being justified and eventually glorified. And, and the implication here is, look, it's all God's work. There's, there's no connection here. There's nothing being said of anything we do. So those are the three main views. Uh, now, personally, 
I don't necessarily hold to any of these views. I would rather say um, not either or, but both and. I, I, I think that there's truth in all of these uh, different perspectives because I think these scriptures all point to these different um, understandings in different ways. But, you know, after all is said and done, after all the study I've done and everything, I honestly, at this point, I'm just content to say this. Clearly, we undeniably, God elects us unto salvation. He predestines us. He chooses us. If we're a believer in Christ, it's because he chose us first. But the scriptures also clearly emphasize the human responsibility that we have to choose him. We have to believe. And so I don't think it's it, those things are necessarily um, against each other. I don't think we can necessarily explain how they interact. I just think they're both true. So why are you saved? Because God chose me. Why are you saved? Well, because I also chose God, right? And the the order of how that all worked, I'm not exactly clear, but I'm happy to say both of those. Um, uh, Harry Ironside, years ago, he gave this illustration of a sinner coming to the door of salvation. And above the door, there's a sign that says, whoever will let him take the water of life freely. Revelation 22, 17. So the sinner responds to this gracious invitation, trusts Christ, and he is gloriously saved. But then he turns around and he looks at the door through he, which he had just entered. And he sees above the door another sign which says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Both are true. Both are taught in the Bible. Both must be believed. And we can have disagreements on exactly how that all works out and you know what the order is. But I'm just content with that. And I think, again, marriage is a good illustration. Um, you know, me and my wife, well, who chose who? Well, we both chose each other. Okay, but did one of you choose the other first? Well, maybe, kind of. I, I don't know. We don't remember. You know, did, did one of us take the initiative before the other? Yeah, I took the initiative. But in the end, we chose each other. Both are true, right? I can say that Colleen chose me to be her husband. And yet at the same time, she can say I chose her. And I think scripture affirms both of those and we can affirm both of them in the mystery of it and affirm all of scripture says uh, in that way. So anything you want to add to that? Um, I mean, <clears throat> not, not really, but I just want to say in the midst of, you know, different arguments and things, because even Pastor Jay and I probably don't agree hundred percent on, on election and that's okay. Uh, <clears throat> obviously I, I completely agree. There's our responsibility and yet it's completely, it, it's on God to, to, to call us, to elect us. Um, but, uh, you know, what we can take away from it is God's love and God's grace. Regardless mm -hmm. of how we view election, we see both of those things so, so clearly. Like God and his love and his grace has chosen people to come to know him. And that is, that's amazing. Yeah. And so in the midst of all the arguments and all of that, if we're able to put it aside, focus on, on God and what he's shown us, I think uh, it really puts the arguments by the wayside a little yeah. bit more and we can focus on what matters. And also we would all agree that because of his love, God of course <clears throat> does take the initiative. It's just what exactly that entails. Yes. All of us would agree. He took the ultimate initiative by sending Jesus Christ into the world uh, to be the savior of sinners. He took the initiative by giving us his word, uh, by the gospel being proclaimed, right? He, 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 he gave the initiative, took the initiative in, in so many different ways. Um, but when we get into those finer details of 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 his election, there can be some disagreement, and that's fine. And and I would just end with what Jesus said in John six thirty seven that really gets at these two truths: all that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
clearly there's that connection there again, God choosing us, us choosing God in Christ. And uh, we can affirm those and we can find great hope in that. And what a blessing. I remember this one lady, uh, older lady in, in our church in Fraser Lake who passed away just before I, or just after we moved. And she would so often in her prayers just say, God, I am just so amazed. You chose me, me, sinful me, little me, insignificant me, that you would choose me to be your child. And as you said, adopt me into your family. That's amazing. And that's what we should all be in awe of. Um, however, we, we understand this. Well, I think that is where we will end today. Hope we shed a little bit of light on these very big and deep doctrines. Uh, join us next time. We'll be discussing chapters 56 and 57 in the book, which addresses the application of salvation and the security of the believer. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you now and forever. See ya. So long.